I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. In our second terrifyingly timely and extra-long installment, Graham McMillan and I discuss Darwin Cook and the Man with the Getaway Face, Joe Kubert's Bomb Dry, Vietnam 1965, and the old-school stylings of Frank Robbins, Don Heck, Eclipso, and Doctor Who. Also, I apologize for minor technical difficulties. Either we were too awesome for our recording software, or there's a problem with the latest version, but either way, there was some minor vocal distortion I was unable to correct in mixing. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Good Long time no see. Indeed. It, it, it's been seven million years. <laughs> Civilizations have risen and fallen. Since we last spoke. You know, I have to say you delivered that line really well. Like, I'm like, mm. like if I was like a, a producer of like those cheap 70s documentaries that they showed in drive-ins, you know, that were always about the fall of <laughs> wait, Atlantis. Wait. And you, yes. you don't watch the Discovery Channel, which is still making those right now. Oh, are they really? Oh, you would be oh, perfect for them. The, um, the Science Channel or something had this documentary about Thunder and Lightning the other day that I was <laughs> stupidly hooked on. <laughs> Why? Just because of the awesome narration? Oh uh, no, no! They were they they had um, fil- uh, footage of forked lightning coming down, and they played it in slow motion, and then like dis- dissected what it all meant. And I was honestly just like, "Really? Wow! Nature's awesome." I, I completely sucked in by it. That's great. You know, I I really am always kind of bummed that we do not have. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, television and kind of the the time to watch that because I don't think anyone ever sits down and is like time to watch this lightning episode. You know what I mean? Like you kind of have to be. Oh no, you you have to be like exhausted from the television and flipping between channels, seeing something and thinking, "Ooh, what's that?" Right, right, exactly. You have to be kind of like caught off guard and. There's there's something that's kind of charming about that, and people actually seem to the the thing that I find kind of comforting is is that when people talk about it, maybe it's this is what they choose to talk about is is that it's usually some very cool little piece of science info or military history or you know some biography thing that they've they've come across you know again while turning channels and not kind of like hey did you hear about that 18 speed blender you know so I don't know I it's it's just, it's pretty impressive. Like, TV, like, people might actually be learning again, so. Um... No. <laughs> no. What are you? Madness. <laughs> so, uh, we, did we greet, greet the listeners? Should we greet the listeners? We should, shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. Hello, listeners. Listeners, hello. Thank you so much for joining us, and not complaining that you're not reading something with your own eyeballs, but rather wow, that, listen that, to us. That's really gotten to you, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, actually. It's the second I was... time you've, you've mentioned it. That really oh, I, I, it's kind of eaten at my soul. Because, you know, it took such a long time for the, the episodes to come together and get busted. And like, huzzah! Like, we're going to get tons of... Because, of course, the part of it is I've just been so busy with uh, other writing and things and not made a lot of headway. I've done a great job at sort of um, uh, checking myself as far as like writing things for the website. Like whenever I start, I'm always like, eh, and I overthink hey, it. Hey, then... you have an unfinished and wonderful post in there right now about Tom Cook. Ha! 
Well, thank you. I uh, I, I appreciate. I mean, that. do you want to hold back? No, I don't think so. Because I'm thinking what I might do. You've done this before very well. I might add, where you talk about some things here in the podcast, and then you sort of flesh them out more in an entry. So I sort of figure I'll kind of do that here. I, I will leave out my my sort of splendid little hook and um, try and um, leave, save that for the for the post itself. Well, to um, be fair, by the time we get this post up. Or by the time we get this podcast up, your post may also be up. Well, and that's also what I'm sort of hoping, is is that there will be people who will be listening to this and haven't read that or vice versa. So, yeah, I figure I'm just going to go for broke, and then if I get nervous, I can edit it all out. But That, that makes sense. Perfect. But thank you. Thank you for your consideration, Graham. Uh, but yeah, to, to kind of like get the, get our little podcast up and it's like, hooray. And then we've got like two posts, one of which is like, you people need to write more. <laughs> I was just like, I know I need to write more, but what, God what, damn it. What's the other one? I'm, I'm not seeing what the other one is. Oh, the other one was just somebody kind of saying, well, yeah, no one posts here anymore because they get, they, they get, get paid in comicsology and comics. comics see? Lines. You did hey. see it. Oh, I've just read it right now. Oh, okay. See, there you go. Um, I, again, I keep forgetting that no one can see me when I'm doing this. I was pointing at the browser as I said that. <laughs> I like, Look, I'm, really, I'm just looking at it right now. Um, that, the, the medium of radio was not built for me, sadly. Um, I, I, you know what? The site probably does need more writing, but... Sure. There's our stuff to do. I'm I'm sorry, Michael Aronson, who yeah. I think who at other points I believe has been very pleasant and then complimentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he he sort of he sort of runs the gamut. I, he has said some stuff, and you know, obviously it strikes a chord in me because I feel like I'm not producing enough for the site. Well, um, you're talking to the person who has had a half-finished Chris Claremont X-Men post in there for three weeks now. Yeah, and it's but, almost so close to being finished. That's and awesome. I just don't have time. But, you know, I mean, Tucker aside, I think it's been you and Hibbs who have done the most posts for the last month or so. So I think that that's it's totally fine. I think, you know, and, and I don't everyone's got their own gig. I'm just it's all very much about me and what I'm bringing to it. And at the moment, it's kind of a struggle to keep uh my writing going and working on the book and there's all this other bullshit in my life that that is currently going on yeah and it's but, just... but really it's you know what you you'll do it when you do it yeah exactly <laughs> it's not your job right other people can just back off well no and i totally get it but you know but like i, I can get why people would be upset mm-hmm. but other speaking from experience, other people's upset at us not writing enough is nowhere close to our upset and not writing enough. Well, yeah, that is really. I true. mean, really, that's what it comes down to. I, 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 I'm speaking for you and me at least. I have no idea about everyone else, but I would not be surprised if it's the same. I wish I was writing more, and I know you wish you were writing more. Yeah, definitely. No, that, that is the case. And and stuff just gets in the way, and and. You know, I'm sorry to everyone who is upset about that. And I could even make a glib joke about if you pay me lots of money to do it, I'll do it. But I'm, you know, I'm a freelance writer right now and I still don't have enough time to do all the writing I want because other stuff <laughs> still gets in the way. I'm sorry. I'm only laughing because it's like running a a, a guilt relay race. Like I took the guilt baton, handed it to you, and you are doing a superb job. Yeah, but, of, I, but, of I, taking but I'm it done. With it. I'm done with the guilt. I I I, I feel the guilt all the time, and I have no I have no urge to apologize to other people 
for feeling guilty that I'm not writing enough. I think that is great. I fully, highly support because if only because I think the guiltier we feel, the at least for me, the harder it is to turn around and produce something. So. Yes, this is quite clearly the self-loathing guilt podcast. <laughs> Oh, Graham, it's Wait, pretty much every episode. <laughs> let's turn it around. Darwin Cook, go. Yes, go. So um, have you read The Man with the Getaway Face? I'm I, I, I have, and at this point I now have two copies. Oh, great. I, Fabulous. I, I got a copy in the mail from um, the absolutely wonderful Anna Maria from IDW. Ah, fabulous. Um, well, uh, I was incredibly pleased with it. Uh, I, I, in some ways, I like it more than the hunter. I, I really like it more than the hunter. Yeah. Uh, but, I but I'm too. being a, I'm being a snob. I like it more than the hunter because I think the format is better. The format is great. And it's also very, um, it's, it, it well, okay. It, yeah. It's, uh, it's super fast. It's super sloppy. Um, not super sloppy, but it's got moments of slop to it, and it's perfectly suited for it. Oh, know? but it's, it's it's yeah, it's it's sloppy, and yet at the same time, even its slop is right. Like even yes. slop is stylistically correct. Exactly. Let me say that yes, that the problem with the hunter was for me, um, it was too crystallized i guess and it uh, consequently it had a certain you know it had a narrative momentum that i thought was a smart choice in a lot of ways but everything else that he was trying to work into it kind of cut against it if he didn't have just the movement of the mo of the narrative momentum i think that um the hunter would have felt very stagnant the great thing about the man with the getaway face is Everything suits what he by by taking an entire book and chopping everything out of it and getting to just the parts that he needs to get to the next adaptation. He ends up creating a super pared down, uh, very lean thriller that is more like the book that he's trying to adapt. I feel. I mean, even though it cuts a whole bunch out of it, it's so true to the spirit of the, the Parker books, which tend to just move really quickly. Um, you know, the, the pared down prose, uh, in, in, uh, Richard Stark's style slash Westlake really gets a, a, a fine compliment here. I think in the man with the getaway face in that he has points where he renders things very finely. Um, and then he's got some spots where, I was really struck by there was one panel where it's like a long shot of uh, Skim talking to Parker, and it has gone from like a close up of Skim talking about how you know small the take actually is um, to a two shot of the two of them in this flop house, and it it's barely more than a storyboard. Like you look at it, and it's just little little tiny lines to evoke the characters and i think actually cook sort of makes a mistake in that he doesn't actually a lot of the the rest of the room now that i look at it is cartooned you know and he's got several shots of that where he moves from that sort of 
cook style to something that is is just little more than you know i you know ink on the page uh, of like an almost you know scott mcleod authentic comics type you know um minimalism and i really loved it i thought it actually worked really really well and then you've got a heist and you have something like i don't know what this this entire heist is done almost there it's completely wordless sequence for five pages here and then minimal words on on six and seven and it just works so well um and consequently i think the the full page shots of you know when parker removes the bandages or that great part where he gets the letter that's the the, the letter is such a good page i mean the opening in general is is amazing i love the title page i think the title page is just it's beautifully designed in any era, but it's so evocative of that era. That yes. It's just such an amazing, like, Saul Bass-inspired... Mm-hmm. It, it, it's gorgeous. And to go from that, which is a very heavy page, you know, there's a lot of black. Mm-hmm. The next page, so light, so, spar- so sparse. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to the letter, the letter page is just great. I mean, it's it's something that I want to say you could only do in comics, but also doesn't feel like comics. Right. But it just, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, there are parts where I don't know if he's making shortcuts or he's trying to work in a new style or whatever, but things like the letter page, it's just, it's so right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it get it does everything right. It gets every piece of information over that it needs to. It's got no bells and whistles and it just, it just gets it done. There, there's no... I mean, something that was in the New Frontier, especially, and, and in Hunter as well, is this, like, fetishistic treatment of the era. Mm-hmm. And this one doesn't really have time to do that. Right. It, it's got moments, like, the, the um, whenever it changes location, it's got the, the watch and the, yes. the, um, the location above it, which mm-hmm. is, again, beautifully designed, and I think, by, like, the title page, beautifully designed. But there's so little of it compared with everything else that's going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the part that I actually... uh, The thing about the letter that I love is is you're right. On the one hand, it's something that you can only do in comics. It's actually relatively unadorned. But what I love about it is the audacity of giving it an entire page. You know, it's because he's... this. it, It would lose its impact, I think, if it's just one full page in something that's as thick as... Uh, the hunter mm-hmm. um, because you've got like another 119 pages to cut to hurdle the rest of the story but one of the things that I thought was really audacious is you know this is this is a, a very big looking book but it's not especially deep and when you get to page four and you have two full page splashes you're like how's he going to like pull the rest of this off and I think for the most part, he pulls it off brilliantly um, because, you know, by by it helps that this book is more of a caper, you know, and so therefore it's a kind of heist story. You play with the timing, you know, to give that sense of timing. It helps to have a lot of small poppy panels to give you the idea of movement. Um, and of course, there's not as many big story beats 
for uh, the character. So the two big beats are kind of his new face, and he sees this letter. You get this wonderful, like, you know, the side boxes telling you what's really going on underneath the letter. But just the storytelling aspect of this full page imparts kind of how important this is to the character. Um, And you really, really feel that because there's not a lot of space in the entire thing. Whereas like sometimes in a book, you know, full book of that, it's like, uh, yeah, sure. Like, okay. It's just a splash page. It, it registers on you as a big moment, but it's not like a kind of a, a desperately big moment, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I was just really pleased. I thought he pared down stuff to the point where, uh, where, like you said, the fetish did not get, didn't, didn't end up getting things in the way, but it still managed to give you a sense of, of period, um, and place and kind of just sort of without drawing too much attention to it. And, and so it was easier to just get just carried up in the story. I think I think that the man with the getaway face is particularly considering it's $2. I mean, it's an unbelievably great deal and just Oh, it's it's, it's yeah, it's such a good book. And and to get back to what you were saying earlier on about being sloppy, the mm-hmm. cover is so wonderful. But one of the reasons why I love the cover is it's so scrappy. It's not yeah. Cook's normal style. You can see his pencil lines. Yeah, you can see the pencil lines in it. Exactly. It, and, there's... And, and it's just, there's it's such an effective image, though. I mean, it, it's and stunningly, I mean, you can't look at it and not be arrested by the page. I mean, the amount of white space, the, the mm-hmm. layout of it, but the drawing itself, I keep coming back to the drawing itself, and it's so good. And it yeah. reminds me of, and this is me being, hey, professional and segueing. Uh, at WonderCon, uh, Cook talked about essentially being lazier in his art and being yes. scrappy and relaxing more. And he made a reference to taking a leaf out of Kubert's book because he, he said, you know, it's his defense against getting old. If he starts drawing shitty now, then when he starts only being able to draw shitty, no one will tell. Was it uh, was it Koth, uh, Toth or Kubert? Kubert, it was Joe Kubert. He was making reference. Okay, and um, and here's my segue. I got the new Kubert book from DC. The ah, Dong. I think it's Dong Zai. I have no idea how to pronounce it. The Vietnam book. Um, and I, I have no interest or empathy in war stories for the most part. And even this, mm-hmm. the writing, not so much. The art, however. This is probably the best looking thing DC's going to release this year. Wow. The, the art, and again, it's very similar to the um, cover to the man with the getaway face. It is essentially unfinished art. It's pencil art where you can still see where he is sketched in the boxes for the captions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. He's working on gray paper with pencil and white paint. Wow. And it, it really is. You. you if you're anything like me, you have to read the book twice because the first time you can't read the book. You get to a page and you're like, oh, wow. I'd like you just get lost in the art. And wow. Kubert is, he's like 86, 87. Kubert can outdraw anyone still. Mm-hmm. His, mm-hmm. his ease of line, his, his, it's so um, natural to him. 
Mm-hmm. That, I mean, you can tell that he's not as tight as he used to be. Mm-hmm. But it's still just every single line is right. Wow. Every single line is, even when it's not right, it's right. Right. It, it's it's just incredibly beautiful. It, it's the story. It's one of those things. It's like a thirty dollar book. The mm-hmm. story is nothing special. Hubert. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, the the um, what it reminds me of more than anything was Kirby's Fourth World, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I began to think that Kubert was in many ways like the anti-Kirby because his drawings are so naturalistic, whereas Kirby's are so stylized. But then realized mm-hmm. they're really similar. Both of them mm-hmm. are at best perfunctory writers, mm-hmm. and the writing is a means to an end to. It's a reason to do these drawings, right? Um, but yeah, the story is is the story ignored nearly up to the art, but the art is so good that it's just a anyone who likes good art and has to spare thirty dollars should buy this book. <laughs> and, 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 and anyone who sorry what? Uh, who's the writer on it? He is. Oh, he oh so he did he, he wrote he, it. he wrote okay. the truth. I see. Okay, um, right. and it's just. Yeah, it's any also anyone who wants to learn how to draw a comic, <laughs> mm-hmm. you have to buy this and just worship it and study it. Wow, it's, it's just it, I I can't get over how good it looks. It really mm. is mind bendingly good. That sounds fantastic. And also um, made me think I want to see Cook and Hubert work together somehow. Hmm. That's interesting. Like. With Kubert, like you said, uh, or Cook said, you know, there's kind of a, the style, like, and I could have sworn that he had said this about Toth, which is why I nearly blew your segue just by, you know, overly... Um, uh, overly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say inquisitive, but technically, yes, I believe you're correct. Um, yeah, uh, by being overly wrong. Um, with with Cook, his stuff didn't breathe i guess i mean or or it, it runs the risk of 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 for me of just being smothered um by its own kind of attention to detail which is kind of amazing since it looks really really loose and it's got that cartoony style with the thickish inks but to me the more of his stuff that i read and particularly in the hunter you get that to me it's kind of like no nah, he's he's got he's got his significant storytelling gifts are keeping it from feeling just completely uh, too muted, I think. But Hubert is kind of an interesting guy in that I know there's a lot of people who sort of never dug his style, kind of, and I'll be curious to see if that's... In in other words, they already felt that it was kind of too loose and too too pared down, and the idea of of seeing him have, like... Uh, uh, his work be almost deconstructed on the page like that. Like, it sounds riveting, but I can also see where some people might not respond positively to that. And and that's where I... I, um, That's one of the things that's, like, totally alien to me. I think Kubert's work... Actually, it's not alien to me, because for the longest time, I didn't get Kubert's work. Mm -hmm. But then there was one of those moments where, like, I, I did, and now I can't understand how I didn't like Hubert's work at some point. Right. Um, just his, especially, you know, the, the I guess it was late 50s, early 60s stuff when he was doing Hawkman and, and inking himself. Mm-hmm. It's just 
beautiful work. It, 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 it is. This brushwork is yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, and one, one of the things I really love about this new is, for the most part, it's pencil. Um, there's parts where you just realize that he's, I don't want to say better than comics, but <laughs> there, there's, there's such subtlety in some of his line work mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. some of his toning. Mm-hmm. That it's one of those. I kind of wish people. I kind of wish he'd been able to explore this more. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of wish he'd be able to have the ability to do things with his work. Hmm. That he could have explored that more. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I when when, you know... it, when it comes out, just leaf through it. I, I honestly, I couldn't say in in all uh, honesty. That everyone should buy it. It's, it's. Sure. I mean, if you're more into writing than art, mm-hmm. don't. <laughs> it, right. it, you really won't get that much out of it. But um, but it, it was it was a very interesting reading. It, it's or it was very interesting to you, I should say. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's funny that you you mentioned Kirby because just a. Uh, just to once again hop on Jeff's magic nostalgic mobile, which is would you know seems to be my main thoroughfare of getting from place to place these days. Um, back when I was reading comics in the seventies, um, as a kid, like there were me and my brothers, and my brothers were into comics as well. And for the most part, in order, we had ended up having a really fairly extensive collection of almost everything it seemed like because I would buy just about everything that was Marvel in DC and my brothers were kind of stuck buying the scraps you know they picked up the Richie Rich stuff the the Harvey comics um, and they picked up some of the Marvels and DCs that I couldn't quite afford or didn't have any interest in so that ended up being a good chunk of uh, Kirby's Marvel work when he came back to Marvel, like my my brother got the Machine Man's and the Devil Dinosaurs, uh, and uh, my other brother got Kubert's Tarzan. You know, Kubert was doing um, drawing Tarzan and a lot of the Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff, well, a certain amount of it um, for DC, and that stuff it took forever for it to, I think Dark Horse finally got the, the rights and has done some like super large, um, almost DC archive style, uh, reprints of the Tarzan work. But one of the things that I always found fascinating was as a kid, like I, you know, my brothers would read my books. I would read my brother's stuff and Kirby and Kubert were both these guys that, I read and reread and even kind of reread obsessively without even really having an opinion on it. Like it was kind of, to me, that was really how I tripped to what an amazing artist Kirby was, is that I would so obsessively read his work without actually liking it, sometimes three or four times. And it wasn't like... um I wasn't engaging with the story. I was just mesmerized by it. And not even in a in a pleasant way. Like I almost remember like with Kubert and his Tarzan, it's almost like you know when you're like a kid and you're like losing your teeth and and they're coming out and you just can't stop wiggling it and it's so creepy and not comfortable and it's unpleasant but you cannot stop doing it sort of. You know? No, there is something that should go in the back of the collection. 
yes, Joe's Joe, call me. Um, uh, yeah, no, uh, the, it, it's to me I, when I, I was. I do know what you mean, however. I just think that is such a, such a wonderfully um, negative sounding positive review. Right, I know it's well because it because it was not it was not a negative it was not a it did not feel like a positive experience it, but but it's also was a strangely compulsive one and to me that's kind of that thing of like when you when you've got an artist who really again you kind of feel like you don't like their style and yet you're you know making a point to read every issue of Tarzan like two or three or four times, um, you know. I I was really it it took me a long time to go oh right th- that's because this guy is actually like so good like his style is so powerful and unique that you you're kind of drawn into it like again Kirby's Kirby's later 70s stuff was very much the same way I mean I went from Steve Englehart stuff where some of the art was driving me absolutely crazy by the time, you know, by the time Englehart left, it was Frank Robbins who, you know, yeah, who's, like, who's you know, a fine gentleman, I'm sure. But the art, is very, it's very particular. It's very particular. And he's sort of he's very much, you know, kind of out of time, out of place. I mean, when you look at the stuff that Robbins was doing doing for the newspapers um, back in like the 50s and 60s and you know as a guy who's got that strong sort of I don't know Milt Caniff, Noel Sickles kind of influence his stuff's beautiful it's just so utterly unsuited for comics for superhero comics specifically that even when he's doing stuff like some of his his Man bat issues of Batman, Frank Robbins, where he's like, and he's writing and drawing them are really, really like they've got these flourishes. Like his, um, it's you know, again, that same sort of those very strong blacks that that Kubert can put into his brushwork, but at the same time, you know, meanwhile, Batman's like kind of his eyes are popping out and he's got beads of sweat like flying off his brow, and you're like that does not seem like Batman. That doesn't even, you know, and he's sort of like, he's running in a way that looks like, you know, he's it. they didn't get the, the Kirby leap down, so he's sort of like, it looks like he's kind of half floating in air with his ankles turned in the wrong direction. That happens in uh, the Invaders work a lot, you know, which is great because you get these, uh, Marvel's Invaders have these really luscious sort of Kirby covers and then you open them up and Frank Robbins, God bless him, is like just so lost. I mean, he can draw London, you know, being besieged by the Nazi um, V2 bombs brilliantly. And then then he's drawing these... He can. He could not be more lost. He's just like, huh? And they're like, yeah, and put them in this majestic, you know, Submariner's flying airship. Like, he was like, I guess I'll draw a Victorian couch and turn it upside down. Like, you know, he was so lost with superhero iconography um, that I think that it's pretty great that for the most, you know, apart from Hawkman, which was a very sort of particular style of superhero, or Adam Strange, like... Kubert, for the most part, was in a field, was able to do the war comics and stay away from the stuff where, 
you know, he would just would not have been a good match, you know, as opposed to someone like poor Don Heck, who went from drawing cowboys to like having to draw Iron Man and was like, um, okay, I guess I, you know, so consequently, like everything just looks so kind of dopey in like poor Don Heck's. I I remember reading, um, whatever Don Heck was doing sort of late seventies, early eighties. Um, Mm -hmm as a kid and I just, or maybe even reprints and just not getting it thinking this Don Heck guy, not a fan. And right. then reading the essential Iron Man, mm-hmm. um, with like his first stories on it and just thinking he's such a good artist. He, <laughs> he his, like, he has all these skills that he clearly had beaten out of him mm-hmm. by the market and editors. But, right. you know, when he starts Iron Man and, and, you know, that year, he was an amazingly good artist. And he had such an idiosyncratic style. And mm-hmm. But, again, we're getting back to what we were talking about before, about um, body language and, and right. realism. Right. He well, just, and see, that's... He had that. And then as soon mm-hmm. as... And this happened for a lot of Marvel artists. As soon as they essentially try and ape Kirby, or at least ape his dynamism, mm-hmm. like, they, they just... Oh, it, it doesn't work. And it's it's... It ends up making them infinitely worse artists. It's like when oh, um, Herb Trimpey mm-hmm. uh, tried to be an image artist. In the, oh yeah, you know, and it was just one of those. Please don't. I mean, I understand why you're doing it. But please don't. <laughs> it, it, this is uncomfortable for me to watch. You know, and it's, but it was, and it's the same thing with someone like Don Heck. Don Heck oh, yeah. had a beautiful style. I, I, I just such naturalism and such grace to his line. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, his that, that, happy... It, yeah, so then, then literally, I mean, he, he does a, and I, I want to say it's in the first essential, um, mm-hmm. pay for unhappy. Mm-hmm. It's just like, people should just look at this and think, oh, that's how you draw people. I mean, it's right. such a, I mean, it's just lovely work. And it, mm-hmm. But he, he obviously that didn't sell, and he tried to do what sold, and and you know he kept getting work. So you know I'm happy for him, but it was it was a come down, and he must have known that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean it, it is one of those things of like you're you're working in this marketplace, and you realize that you're you know you're being asked to draw on someone else's style, and you're just aware of how much you must be aware of how much you're not getting it, you know, and. And looking at, you know, I think it's always fascinating to look at people like, um, to read an article by someone like Gil Kane, who talks about how all the lessons that he learned from Kirby, and you look at his work, and like, I I would never think that I, you know, that he took much from Kirby at all, and then I'm like, oh, right, he really does get some of the ideas. He just figures out the right way to sort of do it in his own style. Yeah. But... You know, but a lot of that stuff is all things that, you know, Kane really, I don't know if he would have ended up there anyway, but he made it part of his style, for better or for worse, and he was able to, to pull that off, I think, for better. And But yeah, someone like Don Heck, he just cannot, you, you know, he can, his, his you look, you, some of his panels of, like, when Iron Man's fighting, like, I don't know, the... Not the Crimson Dynamo, but like the Titanium Man, I guess. The Titanium Man looks like the front grill of a Studebaker, you know, and Iron Man is 
slugging it out with him and it just to me just does not work at all it's like the it, it is the opposite it's it's like you know it's like looking at wallpaper just because he cannot figure out he gets the idea of like okay they're supposed to be punching each other and i'm supposed to be catching this at the end of the punch but i can't get it i just can't get it you know it's, yeah it's, uh, it's it's um it's kind of sad <laughs> it is it is kind of sad mm-hmm I think so because, like you said, if nothing else, there was there's a way in which, for a whole bunch of people, for a long time, Don Heck was synonymous with kind of being like a crap, terrible artist. And then when you look back at his work, at a certain point, you suddenly realize, oh wait, no, he was he was actually quite good. He just could not make this weird adjustment, you know. Yeah, exactly. At some point, he was almost forced to be a crap, terrible artist. Yeah. Yeah, because you took everything that was his strengths and you took them away and then everything, you know, forced him to draw on something where he didn't get what the new things were supposed to be. Or he got it, but he didn't get it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, I don't know. It, it, I, I, I think there would there's probably some very smart historian who's able to talk about how, like, you know, you had like the 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 Bern Hogarth artists, and you had the Milk Caniff artists. You know, the Hogarth Alex Raymond guys who were, you know, who really love that sort of lush illustrative style, um, and they were probably you know a, probably better able to 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 follow in Kirby's footsteps. You know, because you got someone like John Basima who really didn't care for it at all, but could kind of do it. And then you got the guys who came from the Milt Caniff style, where it was sort of a heavier emphasis on like negative space and uh, solid blacks, and uh, uh, and and closer to an actual, you know, a very realistic cartoony style that depended a lot on like body language and things. And you throw them into kind of a, a super hero context, and they are just not having good luck with the results, you know. Um, I'd be really curious. I mean, I'm sure some somebody has put this thesis forward and probably has picked two different school of newspaper cartoonists that people took their styles from. But it it does seem, for the purposes of gross generalization, that there there were the people who got it and the people who didn't. And I would be curious to see if you can track them back to you know a sing a single source on each side in a way. This is what I think called Jess Nevins and Douglas Walk. <laughs> one or both of them could probably answer that in like two seconds yeah it that is something that we'll have to learn how to do for future podcasts is just uh start skyping them as well and be like so what do you think and then be like then we can shut up and they can just talk intelligently for an hour i would like <sighs> thanks for coming everyone <laughs> <laughs> well good night that was yep. classy weird <laughs> well, what else um, have you been reading sir uh, that is a, that is a good question. Well, I I think as I mentioned, uh, uh, what else I've been reading is uh, this this uh, showcase per Eclipso, you know the original Eclipso. I, I thought you were joking when you said that. <laughs> no, I mean I haven't been making it through them at like a huge clip, but I I actually have been reading that um, at at night. Uh, and it's kind of a kind of a good segue because you have artists in it. You know, Toth comes in and does some just crazy ass work uh, on it. Um, you know, it starts off with like Lee Elias, who does like 
you know, bless his heart, very much that kind of pedestrian sort of mystery in space, like, hey, you know, who wants to read a space cabbie kind of story style? And then you get Toth, and everything moves into, I mean, first off, he's a great choice because you've got, you know, Eclipso, who's this weird, you know, this weird hook of a story, which is, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, but, you know, verses each other in this weird faux superhero context. Um, So you've got a character who's literally associated with darkness, and you've got Toth, who's just like, just laying on the blacks. But even more than that, he's really takes... um, I was really surprised looking at the collection how much of what I remembered of Eclipso was kind of the pleasant, mild Lee Elias style sort of thing, where it's like, here's a guy in a goofy, you know, who looks basically like a normal dude, except for he's wearing like a very silly outfit and half of his face is blue, or mm. two-thirds of his face is blue, to to Toth's version, which clearly was when they brought the character back in the 90s, they were looking really closely at, like, he's like very much like a troll, you know, his face is grotesque and long and suddenly his ears are are elven you know he looks like a he looks like a dark elf you know um but he just the cartooning is just great and bob haney's stuff is it's not as um freewheeling and zany as it is in Britain the bold you know um he, you know, he tells a pretty good yarn it's kind of great seeing his like last minute sort of you know weirdo reversals of like oh but because i managed to hide the other thing in the space capsule that eclipso didn't know about it it it's kind of a great hook the idea of somebody playing cat and mouse with himself um have you got... seen um jekyll the the stephen moffat reboot i guess of jekyll and hyde i have not that's what it is oh really cat and Wow. Two people who are the same person trying to outwit each other. Yeah. I mean it's it's a it's a great idea. Now are you watching that on Netflix on demand or I, I was. Discs, or? No, I, I Netflix instanted it. Yeah. That's that is a service that I've got to pick up because it's something that Jekyll in particular I've heard some very good things about and I've been it's, absolutely it's really um frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got some really great things to it, and it's got some really not. And <laughs> I couldn't quite decide which side I was on in the end. Really? So yeah. it kind of not, it was a mixed bag. It was you. a very mixed bag for me. Interesting. And how do you feel about Moffat's work generally? I mean, are you a uh, fan? I am a fan, so actually. Much a fan? I really am. I, I didn't like things like coupling. I mean, coupling was fine, but it wasn't really my thing. I think his mm-hmm. Doctor Who is really good i think doctor who right now is the best it's been in years really yeah. even even better than under davies then huh? yeah definitely uh, mm-hmm. maybe not the first year of davis but I, th- I think it's better than david Tennant's stuff but in part because i mean do you watch doctor who am i, am I sort of talking not not at all but okay. you know uh, well, well Dave, to my mind what davis tried to do mm-hmm. was make doctor who popular by making it like a hollywood movie Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that's not who Doctor Who was to begin with, which on one hand doesn't matter because he's doing it for a whole new audience. 
Uh, but the other is it leads to some really ridiculously lazy plotting. Mm. Um, and it's very clear from the first two episodes of, of Moffat's run that, first of all, he's brought it so much back to being a kid show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a, it's like a magic kid show. It, it's, it's a kid show that's not trying to be a blockbuster anymore and is very... I, the first episode, more than anything, reminded me of Neil Gaiman, but good Neil Gaiman, not, you know... <laughs> well, no, D- Douglas Wolk has this wonderful um, explanation of what he thinks Neil Gaiman has been writing since he finished Sandman, which mm-hmm. he calls the let-me-tell-you-a-story story. Yes, yes. Which, which exactly. is, you know, it, it's, is a great way of saying it. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's something about the first the first episode of, of Moffat's uh, run on, as showrunner who... That um, that really I don't know just really resonated with me. I was like, he's there are many ways in which he's making it obvious that it's for kids again, which I really appreciated because Doctor Who to me is a kids show. I mean, that's what it is. Um, but it's just it's done well. It's still gimmicks that I don't like. They have this thing where at the end of the episode, for some reason, or at least in the first two episodes, they replay key scenes. Mm-hmm. As if like, and this is what you should have been paying attention to, which is kind of, it's kind of annoying. You know, it's kind of like, we'll catch up. Do you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also feel like they're building up. So at the end of the season, they'll do that for the season and you'll be like, oh, of course. Right. So I, I kind of want to forgive him for it because I think it's leading somewhere. Uh, I see. I just really like the, the Moffat Doctor Who. I think it's really, really, really good. Oh, good. All right. Well, that point where um, I have no idea if it's online. It might be on iTunes, actually. Um, if you've never seen it, I'd recommend that you watch at least the first episode. I I might check into it. I might. I mean, it it's such a um, it's been really great watching. Like, I would have become a Doctor Who fan if I could have back when I was a kid because I heard a lot of great stuff about it, and this was during the I think the Tom Baker years. Um, but literally, you know, this, this is how old I am. It's like no video cassettes, no nothing. It's like, if you didn't have a TV channel that showed it and yeah, you're, you're screwed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, and I suppose I could have jumped into the novels cause there were a ton of the novelizations were released around then. And I just, I never got around to it. So it's one of those things where I'm like, eh, I should dip my toe in it, but great seeing it go from being a very kind of obscure, not obscure, but um, being a thing. Oh that... no, it, it was a it was a a massive cult insofar as it was really cultish, and now it's yes. it's mainstream, and that's kind of stunning to me. Yeah, to me too. Kind of in the way that when the Star Trek motion picture reboot came out and was huge, you know, like, wow, really? Like, because it was, you know, original generation and stuff, and there was a whole bunch of, like, it managed to hit exactly the new audience that it said that it was going to try and hit. Like, so frequently you see these things get rebooted, and it's like, we're bringing this back for, like, a whole new generation, and essentially what you get is the old generation who are watching it and just bitching about it. Um, it was very interesting to see the Star Trek movie, like get people like you could go online and see people who are like, these were people who weren't even watching next generation. Cause they were kids 
that like too young for it almost. Mm-hmm. Um, to see them get hooked on the Star Trek movie was kind of like amazing. So, but, but what, kinda... what's what I think? Um, who does the Doctor Who reboots for one of better way does right is um, it's it's format is great. Mm-hmm. It does something that very few genre television series, very few American genre television series these days remembers how to do, which is tell a complete story every episode. Right. On the rare occasions that is, uh, or rather, there's an occasional rare thing where it's a two-parter. A two-part episode. But, but even then, like, um, and it's weird because you look back at something like Buffy, which wasn't that long ago. Buffy was, what, 15 years ago? Mm-hmm. And, and Buffy does that as well. Buffy it was really good at telling an individual story per episode and having an overarching narrative for the season. Oh yeah, and, but then you go to something like Lost, and Lost, <laughs> no, but Lost completely screwed up genre television in America because all of a sudden you've got things like Flash Forward and V, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even Chuck, um, which seems to think that it's more important to have a mythology that you feed than to tell an individual story, and right. it, it it turns into, and this is me sounding ridiculously foolish. But it turns into the problem with superhero comics as well, that it's no longer about a story, it's about feeding the mythology. Yes. And, no, and I, there's I a balance. You can do both. Right. But the balance is, I mean, almost, especially in superhero comics, almost entirely lost. Well, and I think the reason why it's entirely lost in superhero comics is you can't really, nobody creates new characters anymore i mean it seems like a sucker's game to, yeah but you to... could do it with old characters i mean look at morrison's all-star superman right no agreed absolutely absolutely on the other hand i'm sort of like i would be really interested to see if like he had done two years of all-star superman you know what i mean like it's i i do think that you can take old characters and you can kind of tell like tell your one Superman story or your one Batman story but if the next person comes in and does that same thing you kind of get diminishing returns I think too you know I I kind of felt like that was the case with um, you know (coughs) excuse me when Batman had what I called post hush syndrome where like after hush it seemed like everybody who stepped in there was going to tell someone like their big Batman story that was going to work in every single villain and was going to introduce some new mysterious figure. And it was, it was sort of copying the same moves a little bit, you know? And I, I kind of feel that the problem with superhero, superhero stories is not so much that, like you said, there's the feeding of the mythology, but if you kind of can't throw like fresh chum in the water, you're pretty much, sort of circling the same seven or eight elements, you know, and some people, God bless them, still manage to create a new character or throw a new character in there, but usually what I feel like we see are the, you see the analogs, you know, um, you see the the Batman Juniors, you know, the the idea of like, okay, here's, here's Batman versus variations of Batman, or here's Batman, but he's no longer Batman, and the sidekick steps in and is man. Or here's Batman versus Superman. You know, it's almost like um, wrestling, where like most of the the tr- juice that superhero comics are getting out of superhero comics is from that civil war syndrome of like now let's see this hero like fight this hero, and you only had a little bit of that in that sort of Marvel team up way of they did it for ten pages and they beat another villain, 
but I kind of do feel that there's um, you have to keep introducing kind of new blood and new characters into that and, and I honestly feel that of course like people aren't going to do that if you aren't going to give them any participation in it but you know I, I was at WonderCon and somebody was talking like at the at Axel Alonso's panel someone got up and was like why Deadpool why now you know why are there 37,000 character Deadpool comics out um he's a great character but he's been around for like you know 20 years why now and I'm not quite sure what Axel Alonso said he was something like well he's a great character and we just got a handle on him and the time's right and blah 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 but for myself I sometimes wonder if you know the big Russian Deadpool is kind of the same way that like the characters who were introduced in the 70s were suddenly big 16, 18 years later in the 90s and then the characters that were big in the 90s suddenly 16, 18 years later are big now. It's kind of like there's a cycle of like this is the stuff you read when you were a kid and you were excited and then you sort of come back to comics and then boom, like, hey, Deadpool, I remember reading him when I was eight. Um, You've just really depressed me that I have survived a a generational cycle in comics. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I get what you're saying, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't even necessarily disagree. But uh, yeah, wow, I now feel I I now feel even older. (laughs) Um, Well, my work here then is done. Exactly (laughs) completed. I mean, I think there's an element of that. I think also there's an element of, you know, why so many Deadpool now? Um, because Marvel and DC, and I think this is to an extent, just repeating what you just said, mm-hmm. uh, just cycle through ideas desperately waiting for something to stick. And then when something sticks, they, they run it into the ground. Right. And I mean, I, I and, and this is going to piss off the, the guy at Robot 6 who thinks I hate Marvel. But Marvel, to my mind, does it both better and more often than DC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I was I was doing previews for Comics Experience the other day, and I realized that there's going to be two Thor comics. I know, isn't there's that insane? Two ongoing Thor comics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely crazy. Even, even, and also, there's going to be three Captain America comics written by Brubaker. Wow. Because there's Captain America, and now there's new Steve Rogers Super Soldier, which right. apparently is a miniseries, but it doesn't tell you how many issues it's going to be. Jesus. And there's Secret Avengers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's three Captain America books. Yeah. Well, technically... And in, and in terms Avengers... of the Avengers, the Avengers is insane. Mm-hmm. They have uh, Avengers, which is apparently called Avengers inside Marvel. <laughs> what? Someone told me, yeah, because it's the A-list characters. Oh, oh, wait, this is like their internal name for them? Is the Avengers or? Avengers, yeah. Wow. Uh, so there's, anyway, there's Avengers, there's New Avengers, there's Secret Avengers, there's Avengers Academy. There's also two alternating bi-monthlies, Avengers Prime and Avengers Children's Crusade, plus the Ultimate Avengers and New Ultimates. Oh my god. Well, congratulations, Graham. I didn't think that you were going to depress me after I depressed you, but I think you've counter-depressed me. There's three Captain America books. There's, what's that, seven Avengers books? That is just crazy. That is just crazy. I mean, I, I agree. I do think that Marvel is kind of brilliant in their ability to sort of 
exploit and strip mine a concept. I think what sort of distresses me is for the most part, like they're not necessarily new concepts, you know? No, I no, mean... they're, 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 they're not. I can't think of a, a long lasting new concept past runaways. Right. Right. Um, and the thing is, I think they know that. And I think that's partially why Young Avengers has gone the way Young Avengers is on. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they've really treated Young Avengers pretty well. Mm-hmm. They're waiting for, uh, I'm completely blanking on the writer, Alan Heinberg, to right. come back. I mean, that, that's, that's what really surprised me. They've done lots of miniseries, done lots of ones. But, but really, they kind of waited for Heinberg to come back. And I, I, I think part of it is they realized that they've got to have someone nurturing the new ideas to have, they, that have um, some sort of success. Right. Yeah, no, I, 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 the thing that I find really fascinating about Marvel is I would say that their talent pool currently is really, really high. Like, they've got a really great eye for talent. You know, you've got the Periscope Studios people, you know, you've got Brubaker, you've got just, just a ton of really tremendous people. Heinberg, I think Heinberg was a great thing. I actually thought that, uh, you know, when they got, uh, Landelof, is that it? God, why am I so yeah, bad yeah, with the names? Yeah. Landelof, you know, he was, you know, those they those were all pretty decent books. I mean, even even before you know Kevin Smith sort of like you know self destructed, I thought his stuff wasn't terrible. You yeah. know, like you know the occasional like Robert Zimmerman aside. No, it's not Robert Zimmerman. That's Bob Dylan. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, but that is. would be it's, awesome. It's, uh, it's, Someone Zimmerman. Ron Zimmerman. Ron Zimmerman. But let me tell you, Robert Zimmerman's Rawhide Kid, I would have bought that in a dead second. I would have bought 37,000 of those, you know? Oh, Bob Dylan writing like a Western, like a, a God. Oh, you just reminded me. I read Neil Young's comic. What? Neil Neil Young Young. has a comic? What? Did you not know this? No. Neil Neil Young's done a graphic novel with Vertigo. Really? Yes, Greendale, based on his film, based on his album. Oh, right. Okay. Then I did sort of know this, and I was kind of uninterested. So, how is it? Um, And this is completely derailed, the conversation we were just having. Um, It's not horrendous. Wow. To to be fair, to be fair, he doesn't script it. Josh Dyser scripts it. Oh. The guy who writes uh, Unknown Soldier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And... Everything that's good about the writing is Josh Dysart, and everything that isn't is Neil Young. And uh, you can tell. Like, it's like the story in which the young hippie realizes that she can affect change in the generation. Hello, Neil Young. The <laughs> tone of voice from the narrator is quite clearly Dysart. And it's, it's, a, it's a smart move. He, uh, the narration, I don't want to say it distances itself from the story, but it has uh, a self-awareness. That really right. helps it. Well, um, again, it's one of these books that is worth looking at, if only because it's drawn by Cliff Chang and oh, colored, colored by Dave Stewart. And so <laughs> it looks lovely. That sounds beautiful. Wow. Um, but yeah, it, it's another um, another DC uh, preview. Wow. The- Look at you. La, la, la. I'm Grant <laughs> I get previews in the mail. They are right? awesome. <laughs> what were we talking about? 
talking about before I, I went on that? Oh, Marvel's talent pool. Marvel's talent pool, I think, is incredibly high, which, again, is one of those reasons why I'm tr- struggling with my own variations of comic book burnout, is I'm like, wow, all these people are really good, but I kind of don't care so much, and I, I don't know, it's interesting. I'm looking at the marketplace. I'm not... the. You would think the marketplace would be more responsive than it is to talent as well. I mean, I don't know. I'm, it could just be that Marvel's diluting its brand so much that... Well, I, I Marvel is, at this point... It's one of those things that I really want to say they're self-destructing, except they're clearly not. But I can't believe they think the market can support all of that. Right. No, it's... Uh, Marvel. Marvel's kind of, apart from, uh, you know... <laughs> If we skip over my, you know, fat man analogy from the previous podcast, which I'm still quite fond of, uh, it's it's almost like the housing market boom, where people kept saying like, okay, this cannot sustain, it's this is going to burst, and then and then it would continue to grow, and, and you know, everyone else was like, oh, well, there must not be any upper limit to this, you know. It, clearly there is, and yet it's fascinating that Marvel has not hit it yet, because I would have thought that they would have gotten it, hit that point two or three years ago, you know? Um, and yet they're still somehow, like, they're still turning out an abnormally large number of titles, and although the sales are not great, um, they're still somehow kind of trundling along at 20 or 30 or 40,000, which is you know, about fifteen to 20,000 more than I thought they would, you know? So, I mean, who's, who's to say... The other thing that I think is fascinating is it's not... You know, I used to think that if you had six Avengers titles that were selling 30,000 each, if you cut down to, say, two Avengers titles, they would each be doing, like, 90,000. That doesn't really seem to be the case, as far as I can tell. You know, you get... 60,000 people buying an Avengers book, and then you get 40,000 people buying the spinoff book, and then unless it's something that nobody has any interest in, you can you can actually clone a number of those Avengers titles and have them do within that same range, And as far as I can tell. And it's I find that kind of staggering. I do not know what that means as far as the marketplace goes. I find it kind of scary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm not saying that it's awesome, because <laughs> I think that what it means is you have 40,000 guys who are buying anything with Avengers in it, um, and the moment that those guys get fed up and leave, you suddenly, those people are gone, you know, um, and suddenly, no, you know, none of those books sell 40,000 copies, but what's worse is my worry is is that those guys are not going to turn around and those those 40,000 copies are not going to move else place into the marketplace. They're not it's not even like they're going to jump over and start buying Amazing Spider-Man much less, you know, a really awesome indie comic of some sort or, or you know, Criminal or Powers or something like that. They're just going to be gone, you know. Yeah, I can see that. I I think there's I think the market's in this very odd, about to splinter place. Do you think? Yeah, I, 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 I can't believe that with DC apparently trying to do what Marvel has been doing for the last years, that something will not go hideous, hideously wrong very soon. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I can't. I, 
And the sad thing is, and this is maybe me, my bias and fanboyishness showing through, I think the changes DC are making for the most part are changes for better. And in terms of like, I think the refocusing of Green Arrow is more interesting than where it was before. I think Flash is in a relatively stronger uh, creative shape that has been for a long time, etc., etc. But right. trying to ch- turn everything into a franchise and trying to build upon that franchise by adding extra books, I think it's just going to kill. I think it's going to kill DC. Mm. We will see. We will see. I kind of am inclined to believe you. It's just that, weirdly enough, there's that whole... You thought it would have happened with Marvel. Well, I would have thought that it would have happened with Marvel. I also think that, for the most part, it really depends on who you get. I mean, you know, um, I felt that the the whole Green Lantern franchise appears to have grown pretty organically. And, I mean, you got to really put the quotes around organic, considering it's, like, completely tied into all these events and things. But those are events that are tied to those books, you know. And, obviously, Johns and Tomasi and, I guess, Gibbons, I guess, you know, they they were all pretty on the same page about where they were going, and they did it in a way that made it seem very organic. You kind of saw that happen a little bit in in a... I don't think it was nearly as organic, but some of the Batman titles post-RIP seem to have a certain amount of initial thrust before it ran out. Um, I think the the weird part that's where DC has to be careful is is that having things like the Superman franchise is, you know, it's not like it was in super great straits beforehand, but the stuff that's happening with Straczynski, where you're getting all these conflicting reports of what's happening and who has control of it, I mean, it kind of sounds like a free-for-all in a way that I have to give Marvel credit. There's not, you know, something like Avengers. I think everyone's like, okay, we're going to, you know, you sort of follow one person's lead on it, and then as they figure out ways to sort of organically build split-offs or group growth from it, you know, it ends up feeling a little more organic rather than just suddenly turning around going, hey, kids, Action Comics, it's Lex Luthor's comic now. You're going to dig that, right? Yeah, I'm kind of um, horrendously concerned about that. I think think the idea of going from Action Comics not featuring Superman but featuring Nightwing and Flamebird for what's going to be a year and a half Mm-hmm. to then featuring Lex Luthor uh, mm-hmm. is a really dumb idea. <laughs> I yeah. mean, call, call me old-fashioned, but it, it's, it just strikes me as, really? That's that's what you're choosing to do? Mm-hmm. I, it, it upsets because I want to believe they know what they're doing. I, I want to believe, well, even if not that they know what they're doing, that they would stay away from what seemed to me to be incredibly um, suicidal decisions. Right. I love Paul Cornell. I really think he's a great writer. Mm-hmm. Again, getting back to Doctor Who, I think he's a great Doctor Who writer as well. Um, his Captain is great. But you can't tell me that putting Paul Cornell in charge of a Lex Luthor book is going to be more successful than putting Paul Cornell in charge of us a, a Superman book. Well, I think that they're I, sort of 
you know, like, well, and who, who was it that was on it, attached to it before Mark Guggenheim? No, yeah, before Gu- Guggenheim, Guggenheim was yeah, suddenly, yeah, yeah. Right, jumped or was out or pushed or whatever happened there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think for me, there's kind of a weird feeling of maybe it's not such a terrible idea. I mean, it's sort of like, it's not, it, it, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing goes back to where it seemed like Jeff Johns and Gary Frank were doing such a substantially good job getting the franchise rolling and then suddenly they were gone and there was this whole other idea that was put in place and I I really liked your review about the new Krypton stuff because you're kind of like yeah I was actually into this and I thought it kind of gave everything a focus but then it all kind of fell apart it it went on too long is what I mean I was uh, just the other day reading the, the new stuff the last stand of new Krypton which again is good, but if it had come six months ago, it would have been better. Right. You know, Interesting. It, everything just went on too long. I, I have I have interest in seeing the status quo toyed with because let's face it, this wasn't going to be changed. Right. Um, I don't have that much interest. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you you get to eighteen months down the line, and it really is a shit or get off the pot thing, and and right. you know. They finally are shooting. <laughs> this is where the article goes wrong. Um, oh God! Okay. Well, they're finally doing what the purpose was clearly going to be all along. But I don't really care that much anymore, and it right. really upsets me because I did. Mm-hmm. If they'd mm-hmm. done this six months ago, I would have been so excited. It's, well, I think it's weird. It, honestly, it's like for the first six months they were do, doing great, and then they're like, "Let's stretch it out." Right. Well, it, and that maybe that's maybe that's the thing that DC needs to learn that Marvel seems to have figured out is or I, I think I'm, they I'm not sure they did because I, I think Dark Reign was mm-hmm. again at least six months too long. Right, but that was kind of that was kind of sort of their first sort of misstep, right? In that way, like didn't they do a pretty good job before then of their big events? usually were supposed to run about six months and then ended up hitting eight months with delays and then you were kind of on to the next, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there really was a... I think Dark Rain was... Dark Rain was weird. Dark Rain went on too long and then I think they went too far the other way with Siege. Right. I think Siege is too short. I, I think that they, they... I don't know if they got worried or, or someone else got worried, but it seemed like such an overreaction. Um, and then, you know, we'll see what happens with the heroic age, but, uh, I don't know. There, there's super, the Superman titles were, had a lot of potential and were really good. And then, and I'm not even sure the quality on each issue dropped as much as there just seems less purpose to it. Well, I mean, it's kind of like you mentioned mentioned lost you know uh you know sort of flip it back it's that idea of like when you've got a tv season and you you know so many tv seasons super strong beginning really strong finish and then a medium stretch that is kind of like meh of being padded out for you know whatever it is like eight issue eight episodes or whatever you know it's it sometimes happens if you do that thing of like okay well we're going to commit to 
18 months of new Krypton, or maybe it was originally just supposed to be 12 months, and then they're like, oh, Straczynski's not going to be able to step in and do the reboot for another six months, so stretch it out in the middle a little bit. Um, you know, you kind of do end up in that, that area of like, yeah, you guys, you're vamping, you know. Uh, there's kind of, there there are things where it's like, as great as it is to have a timetable and to make a plan and to keep to the plan, um, there is also a point where uh, it does help to be flexible and go, you know what, this plan has kind of gone on too long. But Let's I mean, stretch it into, you know, invasion of the bizarro Krypton, new Krypton or something. I mean, to, to, uh, to go back to our TV example, um, this season's Chuck is, I mean, do you know the, the backstory about what happened there? They were, they were given a specific number of episodes from NBC and they came right. up with a plot. And then NBC said, we're giving you three more episodes. Wow. No, sorry, six six more episodes. Right. Um, and they like publicly came out and said, fine, we're just going to add a mini season onto the end because we don't <laughs> want to pad in the middle. And it's the best thing they did. <laughs> you know, like the idea of, of them padding in the middle, I think would have killed whatever momentum it had. Completely. And, and the idea of them being like, okay, we'll just do another story at the end. That's what the Superman book should have done if that was their... their you know, oh, I agree. Problem. They should have said, okay, New Krypton's finishing, and here's six months of Superman again. Right. You know, before he, he goes off around America to try and find himself. Yeah, oh, God. Oh, boy. No, but do you yes. know what I mean? Like, it's, that's that's the point where you tell a Superman story. And you get whoever in. You get someone <laughs> who can only do six months. And say, what Superman story do you want to do? Right. And it's yeah, just, yeah. I, I, you know, I wish they'd done it. As much as anything, I kind of wish James Robinson had had a chance to write Superman. Yeah. For his I, entire, I mean, like for three, maybe three issues outside of his entire run. Mm-hmm. Like it's been Monel. Mm. <laughs> I was like, really? That's an interesting story, but didn't, you know, you could have written Superman at some point. You know, and I'm, I, who knows? Who knows how these things work? He probably thought that he was going to when he stepped in and there are, there are some weird, you know, some weird currents going on there at uh, at DC. Um, indirect currents, if you want to take a take some weird well pun off that. I was going to say, well done, well Thank done for getting indirect currents in there. Thank you. Thank you. I was very pleased. Um, so once again, we've managed to talk for an hour plus without getting cut off. But it is two thirty, and in theory, we should we should go. We yeah, we should drop up by a by um, more house. Get as much as anything. Right. That, well, that's it's... my exciting life, listeners. <laughs> you know, the thing that's actually really scary is so many ideas came up in talking with you about the idea of this. We could probably do this for like a terrifying amount of yeah, time. Yeah, I'm like, you know, if, if it wasn't fun that we had other things to do, I could keep doing this for a long time. <laughs> I, did, I didn't even say the one thing I might say, which is another of the DC previews I got was iZombie, the, the upcoming Vertical book. Oh, yeah. It's great. Read it every <laughs> I really liked it. <laughs> and I didn't get the chance to talk about King City 7. So, oh, we'll, which is also great. Yes, isn't it? So we we'll have to we'll have to just make the point do this again soon. I will turn this around pretty quickly this weekend and uh, we'll just we'll just keep doing it more but hopefully quickly and better. Let's do that. that. That's always a good day. More quickly and better. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like we should be like bye listeners <laughs> well we probably should thanks for tuning in and you'll hear again from us soon
<laughs> Could you say that in the proper order of words? Oh, why? Did I you'll, screw You'll hear up? from us again soon, perhaps. What did I say? You'll hear again from us soon. God damn it. All right. Well, obviously, you'll hear again you, you us know what you again mean. from... Yeah, no. All right. Well, fuck that. That's why I don't like doing those things. <laughs> Seriously. I, here is a really bad uh, confession, but those... those um, the introductions to the podcast, I have to write those motherfucking things out and read them. Because whenever I try and speak with any intention, uh, I inevitably end up just completely falling flat on my face. Like it's, I, Am I correct in assuming that we're no longer going to be putting this in the podcast? No, I think we should leave this part on because this is the part that makes me look like a jackass and therefore will be the most entertaining part. Well, one of the more entertaining parts. You know? Well, you know, there, there's been some entertaining admissions throughout this entire thing. 